Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. Because last week's show had me running down the nominees for this year's Oscars and this year's Razzies, and I dedicated the whole show to that, it's now time for me to play some catch-up on what movies I've seen and what movies I have to review for you. So I'm making up for some lost time, but of course, I start with the newest films and or the ones that are most likely to chart at the box office. So... The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Uncharted. This is a movie that is about amateur archaeologists who find treasure and keep it for themselves. It's not a new concept by any stretch of the imagination, not only because the idea of amateur uh, black markets archaeologists has been uh, done before, but also because... This is based on a video game series of the same name by Naughty Dog, which is a video game company name that absolutely makes me laugh. But I've been a bit out of the video game scene for a couple of decades. It's been a while since I played a game on Xbox or PlayStation, but... um, I'm completely not familiar with this video game. But it actually is a bit of an advantage for me because if I'm not familiar with the video game, I'm not going to be disappointed by this movie. And as far as video game movies go or movies that are based on video games, Uncharted compared to pretty much every movie based on a video game except Sonic the Hedgehog is actually pretty good. I was very impressed by the film. So Uncharted is a movie about a street smart orphan by the name of Nathan Drake who's played by Tom Holland of Spider-Man fame, and he is recruited by a seasoned treasure hunter named Victor Sullivan, or Sully for short, who's played by Mark Wahlberg, to recover a fortune amassed by Ferdinand Magellan and lost 500 years ago by the House of Moncada. So it requires Nathan Drake and Sully to uh, collaborate and make their way to the Philippines in order to recover this treasure that was allegedly amassed by Magellan. And apparently this movie tells us that Magellan, even though he's famous for having sailed all around the world, he didn't actually make it all the way according to this movie. But again, I am not an expert on uh, the explorers, so I can't exactly say whether or not this is valid. I really wish I could, and I also kind of wish that I'd done my research before uh, doing this show, but then again, my research consists of going on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is not always valid. A lot of the times it is. I would say most of the time it is. It's, It's more credible now than it was in 2008, But even still, you kind of have to take Wikipedia with a grain of salt. So that's the only source that I have. Now, if if this was a bigger show and I had a team of experts who could research this material for me, I would be in good hands. But either way, you kind of take it in the movie for what it is. And did Ferdinand Magellan 
amass a treasure that's been lost for five centuries? Maybe he did. I don't know. But that's what is is going on in this movie um, right now. And so not only are Nathan and Sully teaming up to um, amass this treasure, but they've also teamed up with a less than trustworthy con artist by the name of Chloe Fraser, who's played by a relative newcomer named Sophia Ali. And Sophia Ali, I believe, is Australian. Actually, she has an Australian accent in this movie, but she's actually from San Diego. So I don't know if it's kind of like Mel Gibson, where Sophia Ali was born in San Diego and raised in Australia, but her Australian accent in this film is quite authentic, even more authentic than some Americans who have tried to play Australians in movies, which uh, has always kind of mystified me. But So anyway, uh, Sophia Ali has had other parts in various movies, TV shows, and uh, music videos over the last couple of years, but this is undoubtedly her breakthrough role. And the three of them, Tom Holland, Mark Wahlberg, and Sophia Ali, are very intriguing in the sense that not only do they play very well off one another, but it's also really cool the scenes where they con each other. And they're almost fighting amongst themselves to get to Ferdinand's treasure. I thought there were a lot of really neat uh, twists and, and tricks that they pull on each other. But it's not only them who's searching for this gold. There's also an aristocrat whose name is Santiago Moncada, who's played by Antonio Banderas, who I swear gets better with age as I see him. He wasn't so great in the movie The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, but it's... A lot of elements weren't in play in that movie, but Antonio Banderas is is still really cool, and his voice, as he's getting older, is also getting um, much cooler. But the the this uh, Santiago Moncada, who's part of the House of Moncada, also receives some assistance from a deadly assassin by the name of Braddock, who's played by a beautiful actress whose name is Tati Gabrielle. And she is not only a deadly assassin, but she's also a femme fatale. And she looks amazing in this movie, perhaps too amazing because she is indeed a man-eater who will literally slit your throat to get what she wants. And she also does some double-crossing on her end, too. So the movie actually opens up with the same kind of scene you see in on the uh, poster for Uncharted, or at least on some posters, where... Tom Holland's character, Nathan Drake, is hanging out of the sky. He is uh, unconscious. His eyes are closed, so it kind of looks like he's sleeping. And as the camera pans out, you can see that he's not so much resting as much as he is falling from the sky, or so it seems. And... I think this is actually one of the weakest scenes where Tom Holland is acting because when he wakes up and he looks beneath him, he just goes, oh, crap. (laughs) Me, I would bring this film from a PG-13 to an R rating if I saw myself hanging out of an airplane by my feet being held only by a strap and there was nothing beneath me and it looked like I was falling to my death. Going right from a PG-13 to an R rating, and I don't really have to elaborate upon why, but I'm on the radio right now, and I always keep my show clean, but rest assured, if I was even potentially falling from the sky, 
even if I was bungee jumping and I would be a little bit more safe, yeah, I would be screaming a language that the clergy doesn't know for sure. But it does make a very cool scene. Maybe not a scientifically or physically realistic scene, but the scene where Tom Holland is hanging by a a series of cargo boxes that are literally being held by only a couple of straps by a cargo plane is quite amazing. The way it's choreographed, the way it looks, the, the way that Tom Holland is able to dodge both assassins and things that are also falling out of the plane. And this happens in the very beginning of the movie. And I also really liked how the movie cuts back literally 15 years to give you a little bit more characterization of Nathan Drake and showing uh, where he comes from, including the fact that he was raised in our fair city of Boston, Massachusetts, which I will always love and I will always consider the greatest city in the world. But more than that, um, it kind of shows how he developed into being a con artist as well as his love for history and archaeology that he got from his older brother, who is also an orphan, who may or may not be alive as the movie progresses. And I will not give away what the fate of his brother is, but it is definitely not what you expect. And while it does serve as a running force for the movie at large, it is not the central focus. So I've seen some of these Indiana Jones-like movies try to rip off Indiana Jones, and I do actually think that if Uncharted actually replaced Mark Wahlberg with Harrison Ford and gave Harrison Ford the fedora, his classic fedora, and named him Indiana Jones and put him in this movie... It would be a better Indiana Jones movie than Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Would it be as great as the first three Indiana Jones movies? I don't know, but it would probably be one of the most original. But I was watching this movie, and I was not thinking to myself, this is a ripoff of Indiana Jones. Not the same way that I did the movie Red Notice with Dwayne Johnson, Gal Gadot, and Ryan Reynolds. In fact... The movie Red Notice had a pretty good story, albeit not one that was particularly original. But the thing that really brought it down, in my opinion, was Ryan Reynolds' overall smugness and the fact that he cannot shut up. So I did like the fact that Nathan, uh, rather Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg in this film knew when to shut up, first of all. Secondly, were very funny and played off along uh, alongside each other and third actually had an intriguing adventure in which they took part here there are some fantastic action sequences i told you about the cargo boxes out of which tom holland's character is hanging literally by a strap that's a great action scene and probably one of the most original in this movie now having not played the video game i don't know if this was something that was in a video game it certainly did remind me of certain video games but i still thought it was played very well in this film and i think one of the things that goes wrong with a lot of video game movies particularly those that came out later is their over-reliance on CGI, or should I say, bad-looking CGI. I do think that some filmmakers do take for granted that a lot of people are familiar with the video games and therefore skimp on the uh, special effects for cheap-looking CGI. There was undoubtedly CGI used in this movie, but 
a lot of times, especially in action sequences like the first one from the airplane, it looked really good. So I was not disappointed by this film. I came in preparing to be disappointed because it is a video game movie and most video game movies are not great. But I really liked Tom Holland. I thought Mark Wahlberg was very good. I also liked the breakthrough supporting performances by Sophia Ali and Tati Gabrielle. They made a good uh, confidant and adversary, respectively. And, of course, Tati Gabrielle, even though she's a beautiful woman, damn, she was scary in this film for reasons you will see when you uh, view this film, but... Just like the great femme fatales, like the ones in the James Bond movies, you can't exactly look away or you you can't exactly um, try to step away from those man-eating jaws, figuratively speaking. But I was very impressed by Uncharted. It was a better film than I expected it to be, and I'm giving it a knockout because I think this is the first excellent action film of the year, and it also shows a lot more promise with movies that are based on video games. And initially, when this movie started, there were those sequences you see where it's brought to you by, uh, for example, uh, Sony Pictures and Columbia, and then there's another um, intro, which is from the newly formed PlayStation Pictures. So apparently PlayStation is getting into the movie business. But Uncharted shows that PlayStation Pictures, even though you might roll your eyes at their logo and the fact that they're getting into the movie business and while simultaneously also having a foot in the video game business, their movie business is actually off to a very good start, which you can't say for a ton of production companies, particularly new ones. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Dog. This is a movie that, like Uncharted, debuted in theaters on February 18th, and it is a fictional movie about two former army rangers that are paired against their will on the road trip of a lifetime. There is Briggs, who is a former army ranger played by Channing Tatum, and there's also Lulu, who is a Belgian Malinois. In other words, Lulu is, as you might expect from the title of this movie, a dog. And I actually don't know what a Belgian Malinois is. A Belgian Malinois, to me, looks a lot like a German Shepherd. But like um, Channing Tatum's character, Lulu has had military experience. And the both of them race down the Pacific Coast, i.e. from Oregon to uh, Arizona, to get a fellow to get to a fellow soldier's funeral on time. And this fellow soldier was not a former platoon member of Channing Tatum's character. He was actually a former platoon member of Lulu's platoon. And it's it's interesting because this movie is a man and his dog. But it also has a bit of appropriate drama to it as well. You have Channing Tatum's character being a former army ranger who is struggling financially, and he is trying to get back in with the army rangers because there is really nothing 
going for him. But there are psychological conditions that prevent him from being an Army Ranger again. But he still stays in contact with his fellow veterans, and it is when one of the active Army Rangers gives him the assignment to take a dog down to Arizona for a fellow soldier's funeral that Channing Tatum, or Channing Tatum's character here, Briggs, has the road trip of a lifetime. The reason it's a road trip and not a plane trip is because Lulu, the Belgian Malinois, is afraid to fly. And the movie doesn't exactly delve into the psychology of dogs fighting in the war quite as well as other movies about dogs in war that I've seen, but it is implied that Lulu is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And yes, animals, particularly dogs, that do services for the armed services, especially the army, suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder the same way that former soldiers that have been discharged do as well. Psychologically, it's been better explained in a 2017 movie that was little seen, but I enjoyed it. It was one called Megan Levy, which unlike Dog, is actually based on a true story. It's a one about a young Marine corporal, not an Army Ranger, whose unique discipline and bond with her military combat dog saves many lives during their deployment in Iraq. And in that movie, it not only showed... Megan Levy, Kate Mara's character, who's a real uh, Marine in uh, real life, fighting in Iraq alongside the dog, but it also shows the struggles that she has taking care of the dog after she and the dog have been discharged from the Marines, particularly because when a dog has post-traumatic stress disorder, it is genuinely more dangerous. And people are more dangerous when they have PTSD as well. The only difference is that it's easier for humans to get the psychological help they need. It's not so easy for dogs, or at least it's a lot more intricate. And again, I thought Megan Levy delved into this really well. I don't necessarily know if Dog did, but with that said, there were some very poignant moments between Channing Tatum and this Belgian Malinois with whom he shares the screen. And there are moments where Channing Tatum has to, or Channing Tatum's character has to chase down the dog after he has escaped from his truck and also has to deal with the various disciplinary problems that the dog has as well. And it's clear that Channing Tatum's character was not, did not grow up with the dog and doesn't quite know how to take care of one. And that's not something that I think the movie elaborated upon very well or used any sort of clever exposition to elaborate. But I I still thought that Channing Tatum was very good in this film. And the more I see Chan- Channing Tatum in films, particularly movies that are released nationwide, the more I've been impressed with his acting. And I actually got more impressed with Channing Tatum when I saw him in the big screen adaptation of 21 Jump Street. I did not expect that movie to be good at all. I didn't expect Channing Tatum to be funnier than Jonah Hill. But lo and behold, it was and 
he was. And I was very impressed. And he was even funnier in 22 Jump Street. But even some of the dramas that Channing Tatum has done, especially Foxcatcher, have been very impressive. So I do think that Dog is lacking in some areas where it should have probably gotten into a bit more of the psychology of animals that have experienced war. But I did think that it was a good film. I thought Channing Tatum was very impressive. And I did think that he actually had very good chemistry with this Belgian Malinois with whom he shares the screen. So it's not exactly a film that is kid fair about a man and his dog, but I did think it was a solid film, which is why I'm giving it a checkout. I thought that I was definitely on board with the adventures on upon which Channing Tatum's character Briggs and this Belgian Malinois embark. I thought that there were a lot of very uh, memorable scenes, and it also showed that there, <laughs> there could be major consequences when you neglect a dog and his needs, regardless of what that dog's background is from a psychological perspective. But Dog, I thought, still was a movie that had some laughs. It also had some very touching moments, not only between Channing Tatum and the dog, but also when the dog is left to his own devices in various scenes. And I liked it. I just think it fell short of greatness because I wanted to know more about Channing Tatum's character. And I also wanted to know actually a little bit more about the dog's experience as well. I think this kind of thing could have been told through flashbacks throughout the film that would have made it a bit more solid, but I did think it was enjoyable as it was so much that earns my rating of a checkout. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Death on the Nile. This is a film that I saw actually last week when it came out, but because last week was a special Words on Film show about the Oscar and Razzie nominations, I did not get to review it for you until now. So Death on the Nile is the latest, but not the first adaptation of the novel of the same name that was written by Agatha Christie back um, in 1937, which is when a vast majority of this movie takes place. It is directed by Kenneth Branagh, who not only directed the Murder on the Orient Express from 2017, but he also stars in this film, like he did in the last one, as Agatha Christie's immortal private detective, uh, Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot. Now, a lot of people who are familiar with the PBS series of Poirot are probably having um, pangs of sadness because David Suchet is not playing Hercule Poirot. But like in Murder on the Orient Express, the 2017 movie, I thought that Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot here was really good. And I think that Death on the Nile had a great beginning of this film where it shows Hercule Poirot as a soldier in the Belgian army in World War I, 
which was known back then as the Great War because there was no, uh, obviously World War II was uh, 20 more years down the road. But it shows actually a very effective scene where Kenneth Branagh is clean shaven and through Hercule Poirot's intellect, he devises a mission for his platoon to get out of harm's way on the Western Front. However, there is an accident that Hercule Poirot makes that results in a certain injury that, without giving too much away, explains his image 20 years later. In particular, one that is also uh, characteristic of um, the Poirot that is played by David Suchet in the PBS uh, series and miniseries. And I'm not going to give away exactly what that is, but it does add a lot more of a gritty explanation for how Detective Hercule Poirot is and some of his motivations in terms of his problem-solving and mystery-solving skills. But we're brought to London uh, 20 years after Hercule Poirot has the unfortunate injury that he does, where he enters a jazz club and he witnesses two people who are engaged to be married. There's Simon Doyle, who's played by Army Hammer, and there's also Jacqueline Jackie de Belafort, who is played by an actress I actually did not know at the time that I was seeing this film. And she is played by a dazzling uh, French actress whose name is Emma McKay. uh, Or Emma Mackey, I should say. Yes, Emma Mackey. And um, she's, of course, um, probably one of the lesser-known actresses or even actors uh, if you want to have the... um, (laughs) less androgynous name for the acting profession. She's one of the lesser known people in the roster of talent here, but her character and Army Hammer's character are engaged to be married, but plans soon change when Jackie de Belafort introduces her fiance, Simon to her childhood friend, who is the heiress Lynette Ridgway, who is played by Gal Gadot. And what what she is hoping for Lynette to do is offer Simon some employment. But (laughs) she offers him, uh, Gal Gadot's character offers Army Hammer's character a lot more than that. And six weeks later, Poirot is vacationing in Egypt when he encounters a friend who brings him to a wedding between Simon Doyle and Lynette Ridgway, um, indicating that only six weeks after they met, they got engaged to be married. So one of the downsides of this film is that I did not think the chemistry between Army Hammer and Gal Gadot was palpable. I didn't quite believe the two of them when they were engaged to be married. And even when they kissed, I wasn't quite convinced of their chemistry, but man, I got to give it to, um, the actress Emma McKay 
that she sold the understandable jealousy that Jackie DeBellafort has of her childhood friend very well. And when the, the engaged couple and a lot of their friends and acquaintances go on a boat trip on the Nile, Jackie DeBellafort also buys a ticket to the same ship and chaos ensues and somebody dies. I'm not going to tell you who dies. I'm very, very tempted to tell you based on who was cast in Murder on the Orient Express, the 2017 movie, Who Dies. But that is one of the spoilers that I, on this show, Words on Film, will not give away. But things do get juicy on this on this ship and with this love triangle. And there are also some other characters in the film who I feel as though if I were to list every single one of them, it's just going to make this review boring. And I don't want to do that. But I will say that Gal Gadot and Emma McKay are, or excuse me, Emma Mackey are very mesmerizing when they're on screen. It's just unfortunate that Gal Gadot does not have a lot of chemistry with Army Hammer. And I did think that Army Hammer's character was a bit too bland. Plus, Gal Gadot breaking up an engagement between two people, one of whom is her childhood friend, should be juicier than it ultimately is. But one of the things that does not work for this film is the fact that I don't feel the tension and I didn't feel the juiciness of this engagement party being broken up, probably because Army Hammer was a bit too bland and the chemistry between him and Gal Gadot was just not there for me. But I did think that the other members of the roster on this boat down the Nile were actually really good. I'm just going to tell you some of the actors I thought were um, very good. There was Tom Bateman, who's probably one of the least recognizable actors, but he plays Poirot's friend and confidant. And his mother in the film is... Um, a renowned painter who's played by Annette Benning, who I also thought was very good. You have Russell Brand, who is an aristocratic doctor named Linus Windlesham. And uh, Russell Brand is usually somebody who I didn't think was always a great actor. And he certainly had a bit of a typecast in the late aughts after his breakthrough performance in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, in which he was very good. But I actually thought this is probably one of his best performances. And there are also some noteworthy performances by Academy Award nominee Sophie Okinado from Hotel Rwanda, who plays a jazz singer named Salome Audubon, who has some of the best lines in this film. And her niece is Rosalie Otterborn, who's played by Letitia Wright, who was one of the best actresses, not to mention one of the most breakthrough talents in the film Black Panther, who also has some very good lines, as well as a bit of a liaison between her and one of the uh, people on the boat who is white. And of course, there is some tension historically with an interracial arrangement or uh, a relationship in a time when that was not tolerable in many parts of the world, 
especially in 1937. And there's also um, a, a bit of comic relief from some other British actresses, um, like, for instance, Jennifer Saunders and Susanna Fielding, who are a, uh, a British comedy duo. And they have a history there, which I won't get into, but I do think that Death of the Nile is worth seeing, and I think Kenneth Branagh certainly anchors this roster of talent as well as he can. I don't think this movie is better than Murder on the Orient Express. I do think that some actors shine more than others. I told you some of the actors and actresses who delivered good performances, but unfortunately, I do think that Army Hammer, as one of the central figures, not only in the tantalizing relationship here, as well as the murder that happens later in the film, should have been a lot more fleshed out. And Army Hammer is a good actor. I just don't think that the screenplay, as it's written, gave him a lot with which to work. But I've seen Army Hammer do very well in films such as The Social Network, for which he, along with Andrew Garfield, should have been nominated for Oscars in the acting category back in 2011, but unfortunately weren't. But I've seen Army Hammer do better. I just don't think he had a lot to work with here. I do think that Emma Mackey certainly stood out here and was not only enticing, but also was particularly scary in some scenes. And Gal Gadot is, of course mesmerizing um, in her glamorous ways that she has. But I do think that the love triangle here was emotionally lopsided, which is why I give Death on the Nile a checkout. I do think that it is a film that gives Hercule Poirot more dimension than you would probably have seen in Murder on the Orange Express, which I think is one of the big reasons that it's, it pairs very well with that other big-budget adaptation of a famous Agatha Christie novel, and certainly not the first film adaptation of it, but it did bring Hercule Poirot a comeback, particularly in this modern world. So Death of the Nile is not as strong a movie as Murder on the Orient Express was, but I did enjoy it for what it was, and if it hadn't been for Kenneth Branagh directing and playing Detective Poirot, it would have been a near miss, if not a full miss. But I liked it for what it was, I just didn't love it.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Marry Me. This is the latest romantic comedy starring Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson. And I don't believe the two of them have been in a movie together. I could be wrong about that, but... They certainly haven't co-starred in the same movie together. This movie is directed by Kat uh, Koiro, who is a director who's actually in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as she is directing a uh, TV adaptation of She-Hulk, which I'd be very interested in seeing. But as far as her repertoire in directing full-length features... She's only directed a couple uh, independent movies, including Life Happens and While We Were Here and A Case of You, but she's mainly directed a lot of TV episodes, but this movie actually shows it's a romantic comedy that looks like um, something that I thought was going to be predictable and monotonous, but it actually turned out to be not so much. So... Jennifer Lopez plays a music superstar named Kat Valdez, who is internationally known for her music, very much like the real Jennifer Lopez, and has been married three times, very similar to the real Jennifer Lopez, and also has questionable taste in men, very much like the real Jennifer Lopez. So I've seen Jennifer Lopez act well in several other films, This movie is admittedly not an acting stretch for her, but she plays someone who is actually having a highly publicized concert where she is going to be uh, not only performing, but also marrying on stage another Latinx artist by the name of Bastion, who's played by Maluma. And in one of the most predictable plot twists in a lot of romantic comedies, you find out... Uh, through her management team, uh, that Maluma's character is being unfaithful to her. Surprise, surprise. And there's also another plot where there is a mild-mannered, likable high school teacher in New York whose name is Charlie, who's played by Owen Wilson, who teaches at the same school as his daughter Lou, who's played by Chloe Coleman. And the two of them, as well as the guidance counselor, Parker, who's played by Sarah Silverman, attend a Cat Valdez concert, actually the big one that is being shown on live streaming all over the world. So Cat Valdez, when she uh, performs a number of uh, well-choreographed songs, although not great songs, and I'll get into that in a little bit, uh, gets into her high-sequence wedding dress She finds out moments before walking down the stage aisle that her man Bastion has been unfaithful. So it turns out that Owen Wilson's character, Charlie, is not a huge fan of Cat Valdez, not as much as her daughter, uh, his daughter, and his guidance counselor friend are, but He's holding a sign that says, marry me, but he's not in, he's not exactly into holding the sign. And it's not because he wants Cat Valdez to marry him. It's because Cat Valdez is going to be performing alongside Bastion, a song that is called marry me, which is not new to the 
uh, Billboard charts. There have been film. Uh, there have been songs about getting married. The one that comes to mind is "Will You Marry Me, Boy" by Paul Abdul, which Paul Abdul wrote before her marriage to Emilio Estevez, which only lasted about two years. A <laughs> couple of minutes by pop culture standards, but partly because Owen Wilson's character is holding this "Marry Me" sign. Cat Valdez, Jennifer Lopez's character, does something very rash in the sense that not only does she call off the wedding between the two of them, not the rash part, but she points to Owen Wilson and says to him, yeah, I'll marry you, prompting Owen Wilson to come up to the stage and them actually exchanging vows without Cat Valdez knowing who Owen Wilson is in this movie. He does. She doesn't even know his name and neither does the person who is marrying them. And what's also not particularly well explained is when they're getting married on stage, is it a legal wedding or is it a wedding for show? And what exactly legalizes the wedding? They do have to actually sign an agreement, a legal contract saying that they're married. I'm not talking about a prenuptial agreement. That's separate from the wedding, but you do have to be legally married, but the movie doesn't exactly explain whether or not they are actually married or it doesn't explain it very well. But regardless, Charlie, the teacher is taken into a lifestyle with which he is not particularly familiar. And I do have to say that the chemistry between Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson is really good. And Jennifer Lopez is a viable triple threat. She is uh, not only a very talented actress, singer, and dancer, with a couple of missteps in all three of those careers, except maybe as a dancer, because I don't exactly know how you misstep being a dancer unless you dance really bad. But in other in other words, she has made actually unlikely comebacks for a woman her age, both in her singing career and her movie career. But as far as her movie career goes, she is certainly a go-to actress when it comes to romantic comedies. And there have been some romantic comedies in which she's acted, like her most recent one, Second Act, where I have actually been very impressed with her acting in the film, not to mention the fact that romantic comedies are not my favorite genre, but I believe Jennifer Lopez in whatever role she is, regardless of whether or not she is acting as a character like herself, like in Marry Me, or if she's supposed to be an average Josephina, like in the movie Second Act. She is endearing, and the movie Hustlers, which was her last film before Marry Me, shows that she also can act in other films very well besides romantic comedies. Let's forget about Geely for a second. I haven't seen Geely, but I know it by reputation. And of course... Owen Wilson in this film is charming in that laid-back sort of way, and I did like the fact that Owen Wilson isn't playing the slacker type that he's played in romantic comedies or comedies in general as of just a few years ago. So, Marry Me was a better film than I expected it to be. The only thing I really didn't like about it was it's sort of its predictability in terms of its story structure and even the inevitable fallout between Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez's characters seemed a bit contrived given the circumstances. And what, remember when I said the thing about 
the songs that Jennifer Lopez performs as Cat Valdez. There is one song that she performs prominently that if it were released in real life, the Vatican would immediately release a statement against it. It was basically Jennifer Lopez singing a song about a guy's love for her, not unusual, but she's comparing it to church. She's basically singing, your love is like church, and it makes me want to sing hallelujah. As a guy who was raised a Catholic, I could not help but cringe during the song, especially where you had scantily clad dancers that had, well, of course, wearing barely nothing um, wearing barely anything except for nun outfits on their heads, which I am not quite the Catholic that I used to be, but I was actually kind of offended by this. And I think it was one of those things where Jennifer Lopez might've co-wrote the song and her management said, you will get into a lot of trouble if you release this song It may kill your career. Don't do it. So it might have been saved for this movie. That's just what I'm speculating. But I did think that Marry Me was a fun romantic comedy. And I did like how uh, Jennifer Lopez not only interacted with Owen Wilson's character, but there were also scenes where she visits Charlie's public school and interacts with the kids there. And I thought there were some endearing scenes there. And there's also the climax that came out of a contrived fallout, but I did actually like how that one played out too. So marry me was charming and it gets my rating of a checkout because it's not a great film, but it shows that Jennifer Lopez in her early fifties has a unique knack for romantic comedies that other actresses like Meg Ryan and Jennifer Aniston have lost and it did hurt their movie careers Uh, consequently, but it is amazing how much versatility and staying power Jennifer Lopez has, not to mention that she's in a romantic comedy that can still be charming and she has viable chemistry with her male co-star. And believe it or not, I'm actually looking forward to not only the next Jennifer Lopez movie, but also the next Jennifer Lopez romantic comedy. Hopefully she keeps this streak up. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for this show, given the time that I have, it's now time for me to delve into a um, segment that I like to call What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters on February 25th 
or on streaming for the week of February 21st through February 25th, 2022. And there is actually only one movie that is subject to be released in theaters next week. And that movie is called Mothering Sunday. And this is kind of interesting because there are only a few people that I know in the cast here. Mothering Sunday is a movie about a maid who is living in post-World War I England who is secretly planning to meet with the man she loves before he leaves to marry another woman. The movie stars Odessa Young, Josh O'Connor, Colin Firth, and Olivia Colman. So we have a lot of Oscar-winning actors and actresses in this film, uh, most notably Colin Firth and Olivia Colman. Odessa Young is an actress... I'm not entirely familiar with her name. Certainly sounds familiar. She's been in movies such as Assassination Nation from 2018, which I saw and I hated. The movie The Professor, which I have not seen. She was in a movie called The Daughter from 2015 and Shirley from 2020. And these are movies that I have not seen yet. So if this movie, Mothering Sunday, is not coming out in the theater near me, Um, I won't see it, obviously, but I'll keep it in mind, and if I come across it, I may uh, review it for you on next week's show, but I'm not guaranteeing that. But there are a lot more movies that are debuting on streaming, and I think the only streaming platform which I have time to tell you of the upcoming movies are uh, on Netflix. And there is one original film that is premiering on Netflix on Wednesday, February 23rd, and it's called... UFO. Let me see if I can find any information about that. Uh, there's one film that is called UFO. It's it's a 2021 miniseries. Okay, that's not it. Uh, that was on Showtime. That's why I know it's not the UFO show or UFO movie that I can recall. But it looks like I can't find any information on this UFO movie, so I'm very sorry about that. But there are two original Netflix films that are coming out on Friday, February 25th. They are Netflix original films that are premiering on Netflix. The first one is a French film that is called Restless. And this movie is about a corrupt cop who, after going to extremes to cover up an accident, his life is spiraling out of control when he starts receiving threats from a mysterious witness. This is a film that stars uh, Frank Gastambide, Simon Abkarian, and Michel Abitbol. These are actors with which I'm not familiar, but that does not necessarily mean I'm not going to see this movie. But I will let you know what I think if I see it on next week's film. Next week's show, that is. The next film that is the Netflix original that will be premiering on the platform is a film that I will scream obscenities about if I could. This is a Tyler Perry film, which is automatically putting it in a bad place for me, but it's putting it in an even worse place by the fact that the name of the film is Tyler Perry's A Medea Homecoming. The reason I am so pissed off that this movie is coming out is because Tyler Perry promised, promised that the 2019 film of Medea Family Funeral would be his last Medea film. The, the other reason I'm pissed off is because Tyler Perry has already established an empire and he does not need the stupid Medea character 
to keep his empire in his place, in its place, rather. So we get another stupid, stupid Medea film, which I will see, and I will tear it apart on next week's show, unless Tyler Perry can prove to me otherwise. So this is the synopsis of the Medea film. Medea's back. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's what the synopsis says. And she's not putting up with any nonsense as family drama erupts at her great-grandson's college graduation ceremony. So let me just venture a guess as to what the, the plot of this movie is. Somebody is cheating on somebody else. Somebody else is heartbroken and just sits in the corner feeling sorry for themselves. And Medea whips out her gun and tells these people that the solution to all their problems is to get to church. Let me just venture a guess as to how this movie solves itself. And if I'm right, I will be happy because I will brag about it and tell you that as much as I admire Tyler Perry for making a name for himself when the odds were stacked against him and building an empire for other um, film projects for African-Americans... He just makes these stupid Medea films to undermine his versatility as an actor, a director, and a writer. Now, he has not made a great film which he has directed and written. I do admire him for having made a name for himself, and I do think he is a good actor. As a matter of fact, if he doesn't write or direct any movies or TV shows for the rest of his life, he would make a decent living as an actor and he would not turn his back on the African-American community that rose him up to the level to which he ultimately um, reached. But he does not need the stupid Medea character. He should abandon her. I don't know why he holds on to her like he does. It is a mystery to me. Medea is not funny, neither is... Her brother, Joe, who's also played by Tyler Perry. Neither are the other actors in their 40s and 50s who are playing senile characters in their 70s and 80s. I don't know. But sadly, A Medea Homecoming is a film that I will see kicking and screaming, and I will review it for you on next week's show. As much as I do not want to review it, but I will. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.